Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Now, however, I'd like to go to Kunal Kapoor, who is chief executive officer of Morningstar, which oversees more than $200 billion of assets and is well known for the analytics that it provides uh, surrounding asset managers and to investors. Uh, Kunal, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like you're uniquely positioned to have a good perspective on the shift in asset management from active to passive. Can you give me a sense from Morningstar's perspective, how has this changed your business? Yeah. Well, good morning, first of all, and uh, thanks for having me uh, join you. Uh, you're right. Um, obviously, we're seeing some seismic shifts in terms of uh, the move uh, from active managers uh, to passive managers. And, you know, my view on this, and I think this uh, represents a broader view, too, is that while it's been couched in that fashion, the real move is from high-cost offerings to low-cost offerings. And much of what you are seeing, at least in the active space today in, 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 in what I'll call the retail area is, um, you know, typical of what you saw in the institutional space over the past three decades. So at some level, it was inevitable that fees were going to come down. And, you know, the asset management business, if you look at um, the historical performance of a lot of the publicly traded asset managers, uh, life has been good. You know, you've been looking at margins uh, over 40-ish percent, which in any other industry is um, almost unthinkable. And I think, you know, margins are probably coming down, uh, you know, more to sort of the 20-ish percentage level. Uh, kind of more typical. Um, so still good businesses uh, by far, um, as, as opposed to being great businesses. But what I will say is, you know, from Morningstar's perspective, um, ultimately we are focused on serving investors and helping investors. And, you know, today's investor is asking for different things. Uh, they're asking more for portfolio solutions. They're asking more for multi-asset solutions. They're asking more for help um, navigating some of their regulatory challenges that right. they're seeing. And I would just also just add that finally, uh, most investors um, are just in a better place than they were 10, 15 years ago, uh, given that there's more choice, given that there's lower fees, given that the quality of advice is going up. So as much as things are changing, there's always plenty of uh, opportunity to help investors and um well, you know, get them to the outcomes they're hoping for. You know, Kunal, one thing that, that you said that I thought was compelling, there's a focus on low cost rather than high cost funds. And uh, some Bloomberg intelligence analyses have shown that money is flowing to low cost fees, uh, uh, low cost funds and out of uh, high cost funds, regardless of performance. So uh, in a period like that, where there is the singular focus on low-cost uh, funds. Does Morningstar find that people are less willing to pay to understand better the uh, background of the asset manager that they're investing with because they're just going to go to an ETF or some kind of uh, passive fund anyway? I wouldn't say that. Um, the reality is even in the passive uh, arena, the plethora of options today are pretty meaningful. Um, I think, you know, if, in fact, you compared the number of publicly traded stocks to the number of indexes that have been created in this country to track different things, um, I think there are more than a million indexes. And uh, obviously, you know, the number of public stocks is um, in the thousands. 
And so that just kind of gives you a sense of the fact that the choices are still overwhelming. And the reality is that most investors still want help. Um, they just want it at a lower cost. And, you know, my view here is that lower costs actually should increase interest that, um, you know, investors may, may, maybe who had less interest in the past are going to be more inclined to uh, invest. And so for us, it's meant, um, you know, doing even more as it pertains to uh, what we call decision outsourcing, which is where people choose to outsource the money management. And particularly in the financial advisor space, uh, Morningstar is doing more and more um, to work and help advisors um, meet that need. You know, one thing you said really stands out to me that there are thousands of indexes and not as many stocks. This yeah. concerns me. Does it concern you? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, in many ways, uh, you know, some of the explosion of products, leveraged products, um, very narrow niche indexes, it's sort of reminiscent of what you saw when you had the tech media telecom um, bubble, uh, where people were just trying to find slivers. And a lot of the, what I'll term is, you know, the shenanigans that went on in the mutual fund industry in the late 1990s and the early part of this century, and then kind of got fleshed out, I think have sort of shown up in the ETF world. So there's a lot of good ETFs, but there's a lot of uh, dangerous ETFs as well. And I think investors obviously uh, just need to be cautious. I'd also just kind of point out that, um, you know, index purveyors uh, continue to maybe on, on, on the pure uh, beta side, the price of indexing is probably still higher than it needs to be. In fact, Morningstar has an initiative called the Open Indexes Initiative. Where we've made um, our uh, beta indexes available at no cost for benchmarking purposes, um, you know, to uh, asset managers because we do feel like that that's an unnecessary cost uh, that they have to pay today. Kunal, real quickly, do you think that the sh- that the uh, shift toward passive is slowing and that the pendulum is moving a little more to active? Uh, the data does not suggest that today. It, it, it certainly seems like the momentum in passive continues to be very strong. Um, But what you're seeing that I think is more heartening is that uh, active managers are, I think, more aggressively lowering their fees and really thinking through how they can uh, more directly have a compelling offering uh, to investors. So at the end of the day, if you're an active fund, you do need to earn your keep. And I think what you're seeing is that more and more active funds are starting uh, to really try to answer that question. Uh, I remember that, you know, right. people used to say that funds are sold and not bought. I think that that's not the case anymore. Thank you so much for joining us. Kunal Kapoor is chief executive officer of Morningstar, which is based in Chicago and oversees $200 billion. I want to bring in Doug Borthwick, Managing Director and Head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. Doug, uh, I appreciate you coming on. You know, there's been a lot of focus on the dollar, which has fallen to the lowest against uh, comparable peers since November 8th, since the election. And there is a lot of discussion that this is uh, the direct result, that this is basically a proxy of the U.S.'s stock falling. I mean, this, this is basically essentially the same thing and that the dollar could be treated that way. Do you agree? Is that is the political turmoil really what's driving the dollar today? No, I, I disagree uh, completely. So I'll pour a lot of cold water on that argument. Please go on. Ever since uh, Trump came into power, he's talked about a weak dollar and he's talked about how he's wanted a weak dollar to renegotiate trade agreements. Uh, for example, today uh, there was discussion coming out of the uh, Commerce Department 
where they talked about linking currency manipulation and linking a currency clause to NAFTA. So the president's been talking about making the U.S. more competitive, and one of the ways he wants to do that is by having a weaker dollar, and we've just seen that against surplus currencies really since he's come into, into office. And so the move that we've seen today, you know, people have talked about the shocking moves in the markets. Well, you know, the euro dollar's up 45 pips, so that's less than half a percent. Certainly dollar yen's come off, but I think that's because it's really been very well bid the last few days. And now we're sort of uh, it's having a little bit of a more reaction because stock, the stocks are off. But even in the stock market, you're talking about a 1.3% pullback. But a weaker dollar has been in this administration's interest for quite some time. He's uh, discussed that a number of times by, by, via tweets or certainly in speeches. And so it, it makes sense you'd see the dollar start to weaken, certainly against uh, surplus currencies. Although the timing is uh – pretty uncanny. I mean, basically, as the turmoil has built, uh, the dollar has sold off and people are saying and it's not just the dollar, right? You've seen yields fall and treasury prices increase and you've seen stocks fall. And basically, this is the deflation of the Trumpflation trade. Basically, people thinking, well, perhaps President Trump can't get his agenda through uh, as, as well as possibly we believed a couple months ago. Do you think that that's a valid argument? No, I, I think that's really fitting Trump news into what people already think about valuations. When you think of the valuations of the stock market, I think every single guest you've had on over the past two months has talked about how the U.S. stock market is very overvalued against any metric. When it comes down to the pricing in of uh, a June hike by the Fed, I think a good number of us were arguing that that made little sense given that the growth trajectory in the U.S. seemed to have stalled in the first quarter, and also given that inflation isn't ticking up as much as possible. So. You know, we were priced in around 90% chance of a June hike just a couple of days ago. Certainly it's come off since then, but I think that there's been a, a, a supreme excitement or an exuberance in the fixed income market and in the equity market that is now being priced back to more of a realistic nature. Uh, just uh, want to remind uh, listeners that we are awaiting comments from President Trump, who will be speaking to the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Academy uh, at their commencement ceremony in New London, Connecticut. And he is currently uh, receiving a salute, and uh, we will bring you his comments when they come. So, Doug, uh, how far can this dollar sell-off go? At what point will it have exhausted itself? Are we back to a more realistic uh, view of of the economy and how much it can possibly pick up? Well, I, I think that the, if we were to look at a repricing of the dollar for trade reasons, I think you're looking at a 20% move in the euro or a 20% move lower in the dollar. Now, that you could see then the euro trading around that 130 level. Remember, we were at 150, 160 back you know, a number of years ago. And if the Fed was to turn around and say, you know what, we've been wanting to aggressively raise rates, but now we realize that the economy is not growing as fast as, as we would expect, then I'd expect to see you know, the yields start to drop in the U.S. at the same time as the ECB is talking about removing um, accommodation. In okay, that so case, just, you see support so, from both sides. So in other words, you're saying that you could see the euro increase uh, by 20% versus the dollar, or if you want to look at it, the flip side, the, Euros, the U.S. dollar could uh, decline or depreciate another 20% versus the euro in that situation. Yeah, I, th I think that would make absolute sense, yeah. That's that's pretty fascinating. Basically, you're saying that uh, people ratchet back their expectations for growth in the U.S. just as Europe continues to gain speed and possibly uh, starts to extricate itself uh, from its stimulus program. Certainly, yeah, but there's a number of international organizations that have also said that the U.S. dollar right now has been trading around 20%. It has been 20% overvalued. And when you look at the, the Treasury Secretary's comments, he's talked about certainly a strong dollars in U.S. interest. But that's in the long term. And in the short term, he's said that it's, it's not necessarily in the U.S. interest. 
And, it, and there's also been discussion about how it's not that the U.S. dollar is strong, it's just other currencies are being a little bit too weak. And so we think that the tide is certainly on the move for a weaker dollar, and we think that that's uh, what we're seeing right now. So how much can the weaker dollar lead to stronger emerging markets? Because we've been talking a lot about developing markets and whether uh, the rally in both the currencies as well as the stocks and bonds have has gone too far. And I have to wonder, you know, if the U.S. is slowing down or certainly not as robust as people had expected, then wouldn't that eventually be a negative for emerging markets? Well, well there's the flip side there in that a strong dollar is negative for emerging markets because emerging markets issue a lot of their debt in dollars. As the dollar gets too strong, emerging markets can't afford to pay back their debt, and so they run into extreme difficulties, as you saw in the Asian crisis. Now, on the other side, if the dollar starts to weaken, then the emerging markets actually start to strengthen versus the dollar, and that's actually quite positive for them because obviously the dollar debt becomes more manageable for them. And you're already seeing, you know, you see weakness in the U.S. equity market today, and you see dollar max move lower. You know, the Mexican peso is rallying today as opposed to weakening, and that sort of tells us this is more of a dollar move than anything else. So, uh, Doug, do you think that we've seen full capitulation for all the uh, dollar bulls that we're heading into this year, full-on expecting the dollar just to rally? You know, there's been, I'd say over the last three months, you've seen people throw in the towel in their parity comments that they always expected the euro to go to parity. Right. Uh, so certainly the towel's been thrown in there. You're seeing now a lot of funds that are momentum followers start to go along the euro as opposed to short the euro. And I think that if you look at the futures, now you have guys uh, going long euros as opposed to short euros. So I think that certainly the trade is now, it, it was very overcrowded to be short the euro. I think it's now starting where the market's getting more comfortable being long euros and being short the dollar. And I think that's going to continue. You know, I got to say, Doug, it's really interesting to me to watch these moves and people saying it's all because of the turmoil in Washington. And part of it is that we're not getting new data. We're just sort of, you know, facing the facts a little bit more. I understand what you're saying, that basically this isn't uh, this isn't the turmoil in Washington bleeding into markets. But to some degree, uh, it's sort of forcing people to, to at least face the, the data that's coming out that might not support the same kind of reflation. No. Look, if, if, if the turmoil in Washington was really affecting the data, then I don't think you'd see stock markets just 1% off their highs. And, and that, that's really where we are right now. So I think there's turmoil in Washington, and that creates a very full news cycle. But I'm not sure that that's been bleeding into equity markets or into fixed income or even currency markets quite as much as it's bleeding into the news cycle and taking up the newspapers. So uh, which cross are you watching uh, most carefully? I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at the yen, that, the new haven, right, which uh, is up uh, more than 1.5% today. What are you looking at? Yeah, I think dollar yen is a very important one to look at. But really, any, any currency that has a surplus versus the U.S. is one that I would expect to see more strength in. And so Europe obviously has a surplus with Germany for sure. Uh, Japan does, Canada does, and Mexico, and you're seeing dollar max continue to move lower. You're seeing dollar CAD continue to move lower, the euro move higher, and dollar yen move lower. And I think we're continuing to see moves like that. Thank you so much for joining us. Doug Borthwick, Managing Director and Head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company, uh, commenting on the decline that we've seen in the dollar. It's been the biggest three-day move uh, in a couple months, and you are seeing the lowest levels since the uh, November election.
We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Well, there has been a lot of discussion since, well, frankly, over the past week about at what point the allegations against President Trump rise to an impeachable defense. With us to give us more perspective on what the standard is, I want to bring in Andrew Martin, who's legal editor for Bloomberg News, and who joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining sure, us. my pleasure. So let's just first uh, get in there with what is an impeachable offense and at what point does does anything that President Trump is, has alleged has allegedly done rises at a level? I mean, frankly, I've read so many competing essays by different legal scholars <laughs> exactly. saying it does, it doesn't. I mean, what, where do you where do you weigh in on this? Well, um, there is widespread disagreement. Um, let's start with whether or not there was a crime committed, um, and I, I think. Um, the issue there is um, to prove that there was an obstruction of justice charge. They have to prove that he had corrupt intent. In well, other let's words, just, let's just be clear: obstruction yeah. of justice by trying to encourage, uh, trying to encourage former FBI director Jim Comey to not investigate uh, Michael Flynn or anything exactly. else related to Russia. Yes. Correct? Exactly. Okay. You know this this uh, story that emerged yesterday that that uh, Comey kept notes of his conversations, and in those notes he said Trump asked him to stop the investigation of Flynn. Um, you know, to prove that that's actually obstru an obstruction of justice criminal charge, um, prosecutors would have to show that uh, that Trump had an intent to, uh, a corrupt intent. In other words, he was trying to protect himself. And that's a very high bar. Um, you know, you could argue, some, some have argued that his previous uh, uh, tweets his firing of Comey would 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 add to that, but um, it's a difficult thing. You basically have to get inside Trump's head, and while he's provided some of that through his tweets, um, I think um, a number of legal scholars have said what what's available now um, isn't enough to rise to that level. Now, impeachment's a different thing altogether. Um, <clears throat> there's a lesser standard for. Um, what it takes to impeach a president, um, it's high crimes and misdemeanors, and ultimately what that means is whatever Congress decides it means. So, um, you know, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's part judicial, part political. Um, and the fact that now there's a Republican Congress suggests um, the bar would be extremely high. Um, Unless public uh, opinion changes to such a degree. It, it would uh, have to change a lot. It would have to change a lot. Um, now, you know, at the midterm elections, if the House of Representatives, uh, if the political makeup changed, that would, you know, the, the, the likelihood of an impeachment charge would, would increase as well. But um, again, um, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors is, is, is vaguely worded. Um, so it ultimately, um, 
is up to Congress to decide what exactly that means. You know, the news cycle is moving so quickly that we've moved on to the memos that uh, former FBI Director James Comey wrote before we fully hashed out the alleged leak that President Trump uh, <laughs> gave. It seems like of, a year ago, doesn't it? Uh, right, it does. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that basically, that there was the allegation that President Trump gave information to the Russian foreign minister in his meeting with him uh, that could potentially compromise a key uh, person of intelligence that gives intelligence to uh, the U.S. and a key cooperator, uh, which also was allegedly uh, from Israel. It's hard to keep up with all of this. Um, Could anything in there fall into an impeachable offense or something that could be criminal even, uh, if indeed President Trump compromised uh, an intelligence investigation. It's certainly not criminal because, the, as I understand it, the president has the right to declassify right. information as he likes. Now, um, you know, I think the, the, the founders um, didn't sort of anticipate somebody doing it just by mistake or just sort of bragging about something, um, although, we, again, we don't know what the president's intent was. And divulging this information. But again, he has the authority to declassify whatever he wants. So um, definitely not a crime. But again, in terms of impeachment, um, if there was a decision that he endangered American interests, that he endangered a key source, um, I would think that could be part of an impeachment. Again, it's up to Congress to decide how how to frame those charges if they were to proceed. Is there anything that a president could do that would force impeachment on a faster timetable? away from the political process? Well, um, yes. Um, I think if there are clear evidence of crimes committed, as there was in Watergate, for instance, um, I think that would definitely um, speed up any kind of impeachment process. You remember, I mean, there has been all kinds of um, comparisons here to Watergate and, and Nixon and the smoking gun memo, which I wrote about yesterday, which is, by the way, fascinating reading um, in, the, in the current context. You know, the distinction here is um, by the time, uh, you know, impeachment proceedings were begun against Nixon, you know, there were actual crimes that were covered up in the background. And and as of now, you know, you could argue that um, Trump has has his behavior has been erratic or or that he's made some, you know, incredible mistakes or, or whatever. Um, but as far as we know, there hasn't been a crime, even so- even in the Russian investigation. You know, um, we have no idea if there's crimes committed. And um, as uh, you know, again, as you point out earlier, I've read so much, I forget where I read this. But even if um, Michael Flynn didn't register as a foreign agent, which is, uh, uh, you know, a crime, I mean, it hardly rises to the level of impeachment of the president, I think. So, well, and just to sort of give a quick refresher, what was the crime in Watergate? Well, the, there was a bunch of crimes in Watergate. One was, you know, they broke into uh, burglars right. sent by um, paid presidents, by, paid by right. the president's re-election committee, broke into Democratic National Headquarters. Um, and then, you know, the real crime was the cover-up that followed. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it just is interesting to sort of look back. But I think that it's important to sort of recognize that there hasn't really been a crime here. So any kind of uh, negotiation over impeachment or discussions over that really are more political than anything else right now. So far. And again, y- you know, for all the fascination with this Russia investigation, and it is fascinating, um, there's so many questions that are unanswered about it, um, uh, particularly, at, at you know, at what level – if any, um, Trump's um, uh, associates 
you know, coordinate with Russia? We have no idea. Um, and again, with the exception of the fact that Michael Flynn did not register as a foreign agent, um, you know, he hasn't been charged for that. So um, right now there's, there's no crimes, and there may be none beyond that. So um, anyway... I have a feeling that we're going to be talking more about this, and I have a feeling that this is not an issue that's going to be going away anytime just, soon. You know, 24 hours from now, things can be entirely different. I, we have I no have a, idea. I have so. a feeling that they will be. Andrew Martin, thank you so much for joining us. My Andrew pleasure. Martin is anytime. legal editor for Bloomberg, talking about the legal standards uh, that a president's uh, actions would have to rise to to merit either impeachment uh, or conviction of a crime. And right now, uh, as we were saying, President Trump's actions are not criminal, uh, at least in any way that people are currently aware of. Uh, And so it makes impeachment that much more political. Right now, uh, I am pleased to bring in Srinivas uh, Thiru Vedantai. Uh, he is director of research at the Jerome Levi Forecasting Center. Uh, and you have come out with a recent forecast that I thought was very compelling, talking about how, despite all of the turmoil that we talk about incessantly, the outlook for the U.S. economy has actually gotten much clearer. Can you explain? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Lisa. You know, if you if you circle back a Immediately after the election, you know, the big thing was what are the policy changes that are going to be there? You know, there was trade policy, there is tax policy, there is infrastructure. You know, everything was up in the air and how much was going to happen in 2017. Um, what's become clearer now is that much of trade policy is uh, is it's, it's shelved for now, at least. I mean, something really disruptive. You can have moderate months. Um, and there is not going to be any real tax policy that's going to be done this year that's going to take effect this year. Um, Most likely something will, at the best, we'll get some tax reform or a tax package later in the year that will start taking effect from 2018. So insofar as 2017 outlook is concerned, you know, we have some clarity in that regard. There is still a slim chance that we might pass something in the middle of the year that takes effect with retroactive effect, but very, very unlikely. So in other words, you're basically edifying this idea that the Trumpflation trade is over, that the Trump bump uh, should probably disappear. And then the question is, what should markets look like without uh, these inflated expectations? Well, you know, there is still the possibility that they will pass tax cuts for 2018. Uh, But I think it's a narrower range. Um, and, and, you thought, the, and you thought that it was not that big of a tax cut. In other words, yes. uh, the prediction for 2018, I believe, uh, your your prediction was $125 billion yes, of tax that is, cuts. that's right. Not some of the much higher numbers. Much higher numbers that were being bandied around. That is absolutely right. So, uh, but that will still be a help. I mean, if the economy starts to look a little saggy, you know, $125 billion will be certainly of some help. Well, so, but I thought it was interesting also in the outlook that you talk about emerging markets, right. equities and credit. And you talk about how that looks overblown. Well, you know, the credit part of it certainly looks overblown, but that's what is happening. In the fixed income world, what you're seeing is because the yields are so low in the developed world, there is still enormous pressure to search yield when things look relatively stable and tranquil, people come out of their foxholes and they're looking for yields. Um, The equity world, on the other hand, is slightly different um, because the returns in the U.S. have been pretty good. I don't think there is still such a clamor to move to the the emerging markets. So what you see is a big disconnect between, if you look at the EM uh, high yield with respect to U.S. high yield, you know, the spreads have narrowed dramatically. But EMs in relative to S&P have not rallied 
that dramatically, you know, so they're still. Well, so I've actually been struggling with this idea. So, and, and I was reading through your forecast and right. you said that your treasury holdings are currently about half of what they were before the election and you're going yeah. to maintain them at that level. In other yeah. words, the expectation that yields will continue to rise. Uh, if the if the idea is that inflation is not going to pick up meaningfully compared to where it was expected to, uh, you know, a couple right. months ago, why wouldn't EM continue to rally? The, then it's the same kind of low rate environment that would drive people back into EM. Absolutely, there are there are two things that are that are driving the EM. One is that while the Trumpflation is gone, there is still the sense that EMs are in the midst of a reflation. You know, so there are and of course the dollar and the Fed. I mean, the dollar weakness and the Fed is also helping. So one is the financial aspect of it, and and the f flows coming into EM. The other is the economic angle, which is that EMs are okay. EMs are out of the woods and they are coming back. That part of it is going to be disabused, that notion that there is a sustained EM recovery going on. In other words, they're not out of the woods. They're, they're not recovering so quickly. Yeah. People are, are perhaps a little too optimistic about yes. developing markets. Yes. Which markets in particular are you talking about? The EMs outside of China, because China, so much of it is depends on their own policy. But the EMs outside of China are just being uh, being driven by the events in the rest of the world. In particular, there is a global inventory cycle that 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 we had from late last year into the big beginning of this year that is helping the EMs. So, Glo can you explain what that is? A global. So, inventory? so if you look at last year, the global inventories uh, coming into 2016, there was a moderate liquidation, um, and from the middle of last year, they started building up, especially the US, but also China. So the the building up of inventories by the US and China was triggered a global inventory upcycle. Inventories which was seen, of stuff, of yeah. commodities, of everything, uh, everything basically. Yes. Okay. And the more that they build up, the less they'll have to import later. That is right. That is later. And and because this is not a sustained inventory cycle, we were not we didn't have a severe liquidation like in a, like in like from a recession. So, you know, it's more or less done. You can see it already in the ISMs are are trending down in the US and and the regional Fed manufacturings, which are, you know, even more timely, they're coming down. Uh, and freight indicators, you know, the railroads. So. But this will all, uh, the idea being that this will all kind of feed into emerging markets because uh, the developed markets will be importing less as their inventories get that more is right. and more full right. and they'll be right. able to spend right. it. Uh, fascinating perspective. Thank you so much for coming in. Srinivas Thiruvedantai. Uh, yes. Yeah? Thank Close you. Enough. Yes. No, it's, uh, it's director good. of research at the Jerome Levi Forecasting Center joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios talking about how the economic outlook for the U.S. hasn't changed all that much despite all the drama that we have been hearing about in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.